Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, If you're worshiping with us for the first time, uh, just know that I'm not the pastor here. Uh, Brian is out today. I don't know. I don't know. Is he out out? Does anybody know? I think he's out. Yeah, he's out. So uh, he asked me to cover today. And so we'll be picking up in our next uh, act. We've been working as a church family through the drama of Scripture, and Brian has done a brilliant job taking us from Act 1, the fall, to Act 2, or excuse, Act 1, creation, Act 2, the fall, last week, Act 3, um, which if you missed last week, and I just want to say probably one of the most passionate ma- messages Brian has given, and if you, if you struggle to understand the Old Testament, if it's something you find incredibly boring, um, first of all, you're in good company because if you've ever read, particularly when you get caught up around Deuteronomy, Leviticus, that's usually where people just drop off and don't read anymore. Um, So it it can be tough to make your way through that, partly because we're not, we don't have the historical context oftentimes, and so we get to this section of Scripture, it's just confusing. Well, last Sunday just really paved a beautiful path to understanding that Old Testament. Um, So Today, I get what I think is the best act of the, of the series is, is the, the message is about Jesus. Yesterday, I was riding in the car with my son. He says, you're preaching tomorrow? I said, yep. And he said, what are you going to preach about? And I said, Jesus. And, and he gave me this kind of like, yeah, of course you're going to preach Jesus. And he's like, no, I mean like, like what, what passage of scripture are you going to be, or what are you going to be preaching from? I said, the Bible. And... Uh, he's like, no, dad, like what, like, you know, book of the Bible. I'm like, the gospels and some of the old Testament and some of the material after the gospels. And he's like, for real, we're going to be in church a long time. Uh, But I will say as we work our way through the, the drama of scripture, this for me is a unique way to preach because I I tend to hone in on a passage and really like to dig into that. But this is what we would call a high flyover sermon series as as we catch the whole of the Bible in six weeks. And so uh, strap in, put your seatbelts on, if the mask drop down, put yours on before you help somebody else. You know the whole routine if you've ever been on a plane, but we're flying over. But I do want to cover a little bit um, from from Act 1, 2, and 3 before we jump into Act 4. In Act 1, we see that God creates the world in six days. Everything has purpose. Everything has design. God creates this beautiful garden. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he declares it is good. And then he says, but there's this one tree that you can't eat of. And everything's going really good. Everything's going well. And and then we get into Act 2, which doesn't get us but Chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. And Adam and Eve 
listen to this talking snake, which you think is we- if you think is weird, I think it's weird too. Um, this snake comes and, and, and is representative of Lucifer, uh, or, or is Lucifer Satan, and he says to Adam and Eve, um, God didn't, did God really say this? He plants doubt in their mind. They're seduced by evil, and they take a bite of the fruit, and from that day forward, sin is introduced to the world, death, shame, sickness, all of that which God created and declared good is now suddenly broken. But God makes a promise that he will send a descendant who will strike the head of the serpent and that serpent will bite his heel. That's the descendant we're talking about today. In Act 3, God singles out a man Abram changes the name to Abraham, declares that through his family, all the world will be blessed. And though Abram was not a perfect man, he doesn't get it all right. We know his descendants don't get it all right. God counts his faith as righteousness to him. In the line of Abram comes a great king, David. And David, many believe that David is this great king, this one who's going to fulfill that, that Genesis 3 promise of this one that's going to, his heel's going to be, be bit and he's going to crush the head. David proves pretty quickly that he's not that man. He proves a lot of things, but he certainly is not the man uh, that God is going to use for that. Through all the Old Testament characters, from Abram to Judah to David, we're constantly uh, seeing men and women choose another path. They are rejecting God, they're rejecting his plan, and they're following their own way. We come to the prophet Isaiah, and if you've never read the book of Isaiah, I challenge you to read it. It's an amazing book. But God, through all of the prophets, is constantly pointing the Israelite people to, the man is coming, this man is coming, the one that's been long promised to Adam and Eve, to Abram, he's coming. And in Isaiah 53, we are told that this king is going to be wounded by the serpent and he's going to die, but that is through his wounds, we can be healed. And then the Old Testament ends. The first three acts comes to a close. The drapes fall The house lights come up in the drama of Scripture, and now it's intermission. The book of Malachi ends, and in your Bible, you've got one page, and suddenly you're in Matthew. But in reality, it's 400 years. It's an incredibly long intermission. There's plenty of time to get to the bathroom, get your snacks, make your way back to the seat, and then we sit and we wait. And we wait, and we wait. And we wait. And it's as if God is never going to show up. He's not going to do what he promised he would do. But wait. The orchestra starts playing again. The lights in the house go dim. And the curtain starts to lift. And in the stage, there's something new going on. New characters we haven't seen before. There's an angel and there's a woman. A teenage girl named Mary. And Jesus' birth is foretold. We'll put the scripture up here. You'll have a hard time jumping around with all the scripture we're going to go to today, but if you, if you will have it, most of it up here for you. This angel's on the stage, if you will, in the drama of scripture, and appears to Mary and says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
And you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means Savior, Redeemer. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He's the very Son of God himself. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, that long-awaited promise. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. This is the family of Abraham. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And something you need to understand about the house of Jacob, this is not just the Israelite people, but at this point, the Israelite people, those who have come into the Israelite household, if you will, are Jews and Gentiles. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This rescuer, this savior is going to be born of this woman. 700 years prior, Isaiah said this. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now, if you were hung up by the talking snake back in Genesis, you ought to also be hung up by a virgin conceiving. If you're not of age that you understand why that's complicated, just ask your mom and dad, and they'd be happy to explain it later. Or since Brian's not here, you can, you can email Pastor Brian. So, <laughs> you've got to throw him a little one there, right? But the promised king has come. The promised king is, is here. In Genesis 3.15, I've already spoken about it, but we read this. God says to Eve, and I will cause hostility between you, speaking to the, to, to the serpent, I'm going to cause hostility between you and the, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. John elaborates on this, and we come to the book of John, and John says this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to unpack one of these words, and then I'm going to rephrase it for us as we read it. But John writes, in the beginning, and he's talking about the beginning beginning, all the way back to Genesis 1, was the word. The word word is an interesting word to the Jewish readers who would have been reading this um, as John wrote it, would understand that the word throughout the Old Testament, we read repeatedly that the word of God is the creating power. The word of God heals. The word of God has, has the ability to stop rivers from flowing. So when he talks about the word, he's saying this is God's creative, God's powerful um, capacity. This is everything that is God is in this. And it's, you'll notice it's capitalized. In the beginning was the word, and he's referring here specifically to Jesus. We could just as easily swap out. And as I read it, I'm going to swap out the word word with the name Jesus. So this is what John writes, and this is what the Jews would have read and understood. In the beginning was the Jesus, or we could just say in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. If you go back to Genesis 1, you'll notice something that maybe you've, you've passed over before, just didn't catch. But when God creates Adam and Eve, he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, he created them. Plural. God in three persons, the blessed Trinity. Jesus is with God in the beginning of creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Down in verse 14, John 1, he goes on to say, and the, and the word and Jesus, we could say, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the fullness of who God is, glory of the only Son from the Father, and he is full of grace and full of truth. Jesus is the center point of all of Scripture. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you found it drab, you found it boring, you found it hard to read. Trust me, like I said earlier, you're not alone. But if you will read it and understand, and if you can understand it, in light of Jesus, it opens up. It becomes alive. It suddenly starts to make sense. Everything after the Gospels points back to Jesus. And the creation story, we only understand what, John, what, what God was telling the serpent when we get to Jesus. I guarantee you, Adam and Eve are going, I don't even understand what that is. What, why did he tell the serpent that? What does that even mean? But Jesus fulfills every single promise in the Bible. He is the great prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. He is the main character. And in addition to understanding his birth, we also need to look at his life. And let me just tell you, we could preach a year just on the life of Jesus, what he taught, what he did. So this is like super speed through it. Jesus' life is punctuated, though, by him declaring repeatedly what his mission is. He starts out before his ministry ever gets rolling. He starts out with this, this message of what his mission is. Go ahead, next one. Jesus' first sermon right here, he declares, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. What's the good news? That God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus' mission? To usher in this kingdom, this kingdom of God. And what are we to do in response to this? To repent and believe, to repent of our sins and believe that he is God. Those who are seeking this coming king, though, as our Sunday school class has been working through one of the gospels for about nine months now, we know all too well that repeatedly the disciples, those who heard, first heard this message, they are so excited about Jesus coming, but they think that he is coming to crush Roman rule, to take over as an earthly king and give the Jews the freedom that they've been longing for. But Jesus introduces the kingdom of God radically different, and he tells these new kingdom citizens, those who have repented and believed, he tells them that coming into the kingdom is going to radically change your life. No longer is anger and lust to be part of your life. In the kingdom of God, we are not to pursue earthly money and possessions. Instead, we're to invest in things that are eternal. In the kingdom of God, we are to love our enemies. We are to pray for those who hate us, not retaliate. He says crazy things like, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, in these things, the things that we worry about, the things that we stress about, the things that we lie awake and have anxiety about, he says, those things, you're going 
You're going to have to trust God for them because he's going to add them to you. He's going to take care of you. He's got you. But the first thing, the first thing that you're to seek is the kingdom of God, not all this stuff of this world. And Jesus demonstrates that the kingdom is here and now through countless healings and miracles, casting out demons, causing the weather to change. He proves again and again that he really is who he said he is. He breaks all of society's rules Instead of avoiding the broken and messed up people, he runs right to them. And the disciples, they don't like that. And the Jewish leaders, they certainly don't like that. But he spends time with children. Children's ministry is of great value in Jesus' economy, in the kingdom of heaven. He spends time hanging out with the marginalized, the sexually broken. He demonstrates that the kingdom of God is a place where forgiveness and humility and, and, and a place where serving others and love and mercy is, is what's best. He is the king of diversity and inclusion, to use hot words of our day. He knows what matters in the kingdom. And John says this about him, and I love this. He says, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself couldn't contain the books if they was all written down. So we, we can't cover it all. Even if we sat here and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the Gospels, we wouldn't come close to touching everything that Jesus did in his life. But Jesus invites 12 men, 12 disciples to follow him. It's a figurative representation of, of bringing together the 12 tribes of Israel again. And he says to these disciples and to others who are staying there, he says, if any of you wants to be my disciple, or if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, only then will you save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? And the answer to that is what, church? No. Nothing you can pursue in this world is worth losing your soul over. Jesus is all that matters. Jesus declared the most important decision that every person can make is to follow Jesus. The most important decision you can make is not to choose the right college, not the most important decision you can make is not to have the right retirement plan. The most important decision that every single one of us have to make is to follow Jesus, to give up our own way, to die to our way of living, and to follow him. As Jesus was ushering in his kingdom, he knew the promises from the Old Testament. He knew how this was going to end. And even though the disciples didn't get it, <laughs> they're, they're arguing for who's going to sit at his left and right. As he's going to the cross, they're thinking he's going to displace Roman rule. But Jesus pushes forward anyways. And the leaders of Rome and the religious leaders of the day, they're threatened by Jesus and they make a plan to kill him. The Sanhedrin condemns Jesus as in an illegal trial, and Pontius Pilate, against his will, listens to the crowds as the crowds chant, crucify him. And he sends him to a cross, and he pays the penalty for a crime he did not commit. But Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53.10, 
700 years before this day even happens. Isaiah declared, but it was the Lord's good plan. The Lord said it was good for Christ to go to the cross. It's his good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. That promise to Abraham that your descendants will be be more numerous than the stars in the sky on the darkest of night? Right here. He will have many descendants, and he will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's, there it is again, good plan will prosper in his hands. And through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus defeats sin and death. In the book of Hebrews, you would read, if I didn't put it up here, he said, the writer of Hebrews writes, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness of sins. The writer of Hebrews is actually quoting the book of Leviticus that in order for us to be clean, in order for our sin to be forgiven, there must be the shedding of blood. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the people having to bring sacrifices to the temple and presenting these pure and spotless lambs to the priests to be sacrificed or the doves or whatever it was, and, and that, that animal being slaughtered and the blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, every bit of that was not unto itself. It was all pointing to Jesus. It was all pointing to the fact that you and I need blood to cover over our sin. When the Israelites are, are in captivity in Egypt and, and God sends the ten plagues, and on the tenth plague, the death angel is going to come and kill the firstborn sons. It's not that the firstborn sons were rotten stinks. They may have been. But they didn't even die as long as the blood of a lamb was wiped on the, around the frame of the door. The blood that cleanses and covers sin. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, but for our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, To be sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus teaches some crazy things like you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He says to be holy as I am holy. Well, how can you be perfect? You know your heart. I know mine. This is the only way. Christ takes on our sin and he to, and, and by taking on our sin the scripture says that he propitiates or he, he reconciles us with God he makes us right with God through using another the, I told Brian this is going to be a very theological sermon series if we do this and by his death and, the, and resurrection he imputes on us righteousness he literally puts a covering of righteousness over you so that when God looks at you he doesn't say what a pathetic sinner that Chuck is God looks and says that's my pure righteous saint right there no matter what his wife says Because for Chuck's sake, for my sake, for your sake, 
God made Jesus to be sin, who, though he knew no sin, so that we can become the righteousness of God. In our Sunday school class, we look at Scripture every week, and we, we wrap up with one, one question. We have, have a couple, but one question in particular I want us to wrap up with here. And the question is this, what do I do with this? How do I respond? What is, the, what is it that I'm called to do or change in my life because of this? Well, Scripture says that we need to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. That's the most important response. Or as Jesus said, take up your cross and follow. Each one of us, if we're going to respond to the truth of, of Christ fulfilling all of the Old Testament, the most important thing we can do is respond in faith and say, I believe you, Lord, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. And once we've done that, we have, I'm just curious, did everybody receive a communion cup today? And if you didn't, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and somebody will come through and, and give you one. We need one over here. But as Jesus goes to the cross and as he's preparing to go to the cross, he gathers with, with his disciples in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover, the Jewish celebration of remembrance of when God passed over because of the blood of the lamb that was on the doorpost. In a minute, we're going to take that communion together. But I want to read to you, with you, two passages of Scripture. One from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some suggest this is the most quoted passage of the entire Bible. Many churches read this every single Sunday. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's Jesus' point? His point is to say this. Do not forget. Do not stop proclaiming. If you have received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, Jesus says you have one response. To live for him. To remember what he has done. To not forget the price that was paid so that you can be right with God. In Isaiah 53, we read, But Jesus was pierced, didn't say his name yet, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's our sin. And the punishment that brought us peace, that punishment was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And though we all like sheep have gone astray, and every one of us has gone to his or her own way, the Lord has laid upon him the sin of every one of us. And as Jesus goes to the cross and He's there hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cries out at the end saying, it is finished. 
He is paying the penalty. He's wiping our slate clean for eternity so that by faith and faith alone, we can step into heaven. The brokenness from Genesis chapter 3 is now restored. The promises that are made in front of Adam and Eve to Abram, Isaac, Jacob, David, Judah, the prophecies of Isaiah, every bit of it is fulfilled in him. And Jesus says, don't forget it. If you know him as Savior Lord, I'm going to invite you to take this with me in just a second. I want to pray. And if you don't know him as Savior Lord, I'm going to invite you to pray a brief prayer with me, and then we're going to take together. Jesus, we recognize that you are the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Healer, the one who came to fulfill everything in the Old Testament. The King has come. Your kingdom is here. And though every piece of it has not been fulfilled yet, Lord, it's already here. And you have ushered it in. I submit to you. I love you. I thank you for your love for me. And I choose to follow you. And in this moment, Lord, we want to say thank you for this free gift of salvation that you've provided for us in Jesus. And as we take this bread and drink this cup, we do it in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Let's take. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are sinners and not one of us deserves to stand before you because you are a holy God. And just like all of the men and women that we read about in the Old Testament, we are broken, we are weak, we're fallen. And we fall short of your glory. But God, we thank you that in the climactic act of the drama of Scripture, Jesus shows up on the scene and he's born, fulfilling every promise of his birth. And he lives and he preaches and he travels around declaring that the kingdom has come. And he goes to that cross so that we are no longer cast out of the garden, separated from you for eternity. And God, we say thank you. We thank you for your great love and your mercy and kindness to us. Amen.